one thing that I've seen in people is that people want to know about themselves and what's going on for them. And there's a hope in that. And there's a a drive to have a more meaningful life, be more invested in yourself and in others and in a in a really in a way that gives you that again awareness and authenticity Welcome back to Preoccupied. Today is the last of our Boston interviews and my solo interviews. I can finally get Zenon back in the room with me. Yeah. And we're going to be talking to Dr. Richardson, Dr. Laura Richardson of Massachusetts General Hospital. Yeah. And in this interview, you're going to get to hear about all sorts of great things related to attachment, the scores G that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And therapy. Yes. Inpatient, outpatient. Yeah. And um, it has been really interesting talking to Dr. Stein and Dr. Richardson, who work in a setting that we've never explored before in the hospital setting. So, like, they have a lot of research going on around them while they're instigating research themselves and exploring their research questions as um, they encounter them in their clinical work. Yeah, and in that clinical work, we get to hear about a lot of the different tools they use to investigate their client's condition and figure out what it is that they want to focus on in therapy. And we call those clinical assessment methods. Right. And usually it's one of the first things that you do, really, um, so that you can figure out what's the best way to help this person. Yeah. So one that Dr. Richardson brings up in the interview is is a clinical interview. So like the clinical interview is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. And if you've ever um, like done therapy, you might have noticed that they probably would talk you through like, so this is our first session. I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, and we're going to try to figure out, why are you here today? Oh, what about, oh, interesting. Scribble, scribble on your notepad. Um, and it's more unstructured than a lot of the other clinical assessments. Um, more open-ended and um, kind of the therapist trying to figure out, okay, what brought you here today? Yeah, just the therapist trying to get a feel for you as a client. Yeah, what you might need. Yeah. yeah. And then there's also structured interviews, which are research-based and go according to a set list of questions or topics to go over. And the one that Dr. Richardson mentions is the adult attachment interview, which takes extensive training to be able to do because it's so standardized and so specific as to what it's looking for. Some other ones that we talked about earlier was those projective tests, um, which like we talked about with Dr. Stein and um, a little bit with uh, Dr. Porcerelli from the psychoanalytic model, um, is these projective tests like the Rorschach test, Rorschach, Rorschach. Yeah, Rorschach, Rorschach. I'm saying that 10 times fast. I certainly, I can't say it once at a normal pace. The Um, inkblot test. Yeah, the inkblot test. the thematic app perception test, or the TAT, which we talked about with the boy and his violin. Go back if you didn't listen to that episode. Uh, free association uh, drawings actually is something that I think they use a lot in like art therapy or like in, with children. Yeah, um, or even just in general, like psychoanalysts use it as a kind of a diagnostic tool to figure out what's going on. Right. Those vague stimuli are kind of what characterize a projective test that like room for interpretation 
Yeah, so then when Dr. Richardson mentions the score is G, which we also talked about with Dr. Stein, that's what it's for, is to get results from, is to get quantitative results from the qualitatively assessed projective tests. Right, and what's cool about projective tests, and we did talk about this a little bit before, is just how sneaky it is. Yeah. Not sneaky in like a bad way, but sneaky in like a way that you get information that you just don't get if somebody's asking you like, oh, how's your relationship with your father? Oh, it's great, love him. Oh, really, it's interesting that you, saw this uh, weird, ambiguous, dark figure as a paternal <laughs> kind of image. Um, and you're like, oh yeah, that is interesting, huh? Hmm, weird, anyway. Yes, yeah. you can kind of get those uh, below the surface things from these vague stimuli. Yeah, and as a therapist, you might even get insights that the client themselves is unaware of. Yeah. You know, kind of get some of those subconscious. The juicy, <laughs> yep. under the surface stuff. <laughs> At those influences that even the client or in psychoanalytic thought, the patient is unaware of. So another mode of clinical assessment we look at is personality inventories. And the most commonly used one in clinical practice is the MMPI, or the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And that's 500-some true or false items that resolve into 10 scores between 0 and 120, and anything over 70 is deviant. Yeah, so if you have a free <laughs> entire afternoon, you know, you can sit down and take this 500-question uh, inventory. And isn't that the one that has some very interesting questions that, like, you're like, well, what does that have to do anything? But, yeah. Do you like broccoli? Yeah. Do you like broccoli? Are you possessed by evil demons at all times? Yeah. Do you use the bathroom more than four times a day? Yeah. These things. You know, I'd love to, like, pull up to a first date, which is, like, a list of MMPI just, like, questions. Just MMPI, like, yes. So, like, just trying to get to know you, you know? Like, so how often do you think you're going to have to get up to go to the bathroom on this two-hour date? You know? <laughs> and um, it's all you can ever really find for the MMPI is a small list of sample questions because the actual test is very heavily guarded. Yeah. One copy costs something like 90 bucks, and you have to be a certified therapist to order one. It's difficult to even get this list of questions, which is why we're... Some secret magic. (laughs) Yeah, which is why this is the one personality inventory that we can't send you a free version of. I know. Oh, I wish I could take it. Yep. But the goal of the MMPI is just to measure, are you within normal ranges or are you not? Right. Which I do wonder, like, what sets that standard, you know? Yeah. I'm assuming all the research they did to validate the test, just like there was on, on any assessment, there's a lot of research done to validate it within itself and also against other tests that measure the same things. I would definitely be interested to see the difference between a 68 and a 72, you know? Totally. Just like, what brings it right over the line to deviate? <laughs> yep. So the other personality test that's used a lot is the big five. That's the one that measures... Extroversion, agreeableness, openness to experience, conscientiousness, and neuroticism, Mm -hmm. or just like anxious affect. We talked about that in episode two, was it? Yeah. Yeah, so if you're interested in that, you can go, um, if you want to know more about me and Zenon, you know, get to know us. We talk a little bit about our, we compare results uh, from that one. Um, And if you did listen to that one, it might be coming all the more apparent just how (laughs) how those personality traits manifest. Definitely. Uh, We also go over other insightful personality inventories, such as the are you a burrito or a taco test? Yes. I think about that every time I'm at my local Tex-Mex restaurant. 
Um, so then there's also response inventories, which ask about like a specific area of functioning. So some effective inventories might be like the Beck depression inventory, which is a really big one, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's yeah. Beck's, how Beck measures depression, and most of us do too. Yeah. Um, but then there's also things for like social skills, how you might respond to different social situations, cognitive inventories, like about your assumptions, about how your thought, how you get from point A to point B, you know, and all the little loops you might do in your train of thought to get there, um, be those maladaptive or adaptive patterns. Yep. And then one another test that Dr. Richardson talks about the, in the interview is the experiences and close relationships scale. And depending on your theory on attachment, you could call this a response inventory or a personality inventory. Right. Um, and it's very interesting. If you want to take a little walk down memory lane, you know, <laughs> of all your romantic failures or triumphs, like it's a very cool test that we're going to have a link to in our show notes on the like psych open metrics thing. And yep. then if you click a couple links, you could spend quite, you could spend many hours on um, <laughs> that website, like free psychometrics. Just oh cause. yeah. Although this specific test, if you want to kind of relate your own attachment to what you hear Dr. Richardson talking about, or if you want to go back and listen to our conversation with Dr. Edelstein about attachment, then you can use this test to get an idea of where you fall inside those terms they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely something to think about, and something I'm going to talk about in the interview with Richardson, Dr. Richardson, is um, how we can kind of see our attachment might feel different depending on who we're with or what that person brings out of us. If you're with somebody who's very clingy, maybe you'll get more avoidant. If you're with somebody very avoidant, maybe you'll feel more anxious. And so it's just very, it's a very complex thing. It's very interesting. So you check that out and kind of reflect on your strengths and weaknesses in that aspect. Definitely. So while there are other, a few other kinds of inventories, psychophysiological, uh, neurological, we'll talk about those another time and really take this time to think about attachment and uh, in what ways that influences our relationships, our health, um, everything like that. So with no further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Richardson. I'm here with Dr. Laura Richardson of Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you so much for meeting with me, Dr. Richardson. Thank you for having me here. So, Dr. Richardson, how did you get to where you are today? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, where I am today uh, is based on a lot of years of school, a lot of figuring out what is best, you know, for me and, and the training that I've had. And so, um, you know, and the interests that I've had and the mentors. And, and so um, I got here by, you know, graduating from Michigan State University in psychology. No way. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, my whole family goes to Michigan State. Oh, That's go awesome. green. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can say that <laughs> on here. Um, I do a lot of U of M fans here, probably. But um, 
But yeah, so I graduated um, from Michigan State. And then after that, I sort of um, worked for a couple years. Uh, I worked, um, I did AmeriCorps for a year. Really? I worked at a, a group home for um, patients who had traumatic brain injuries for another year. And I did some research on the side. And I knew that I wanted to go into a graduate program, so in clinical psychology. And um, I found my way into University of Detroit Mercy, which was a great program for me. Um, and spent six years there. I did my internship down at LSU Med School uh, in New Orleans. I did it in the adult track there. Um, so I worked inpatient um, and uh, outpatient therapy, focused on psychological assessment, um, and, and also um, then my focus on assessment is what brought me up here to Boston at Mass General. Yeah. So um, that's like the short of it. <laughs> wow. I could probably talk a lot more about it. Yeah, no, that's a good yeah. one. Um, that is so interesting that you mentioned AmeriCorps. That's something that uh, some people in my family have done, something I've looked into uh, for doing for the gap year kind of mm-hmm. thing. What kind of things did you... Could you tell me a bit more about your experience in between that undergrad to grad school gap because the people I talk to is talk about how valuable that is what kind of experience what kind of personal insight did you gain from taking that time yeah totally great question because there's while I knew what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go I felt like I needed more experience like life experience and so um, I think that those were very important years to get into the working world a little bit to, to know what it's like, um, you know, to work for someone, to discover, even within what I knew I wanted to do, which is clinical psychology, what I do and don't like. Um, and, um, and I might have already said this, but mature a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and really um, get a chance to, uh, you know, with AmeriCorps, I worked with children um, and uh, doing as a mentor coordinator, so getting them set up with people who um, were like volunteers in the community, adults in the community who were mentors to the to at-risk youth, um, and that was really cool to coordinate those experiences. Um, and um, and then I worked in a completely other realm where I worked with patients who have traumatic brain injuries. And now I do neurocognitive testing. I mean, there's there what I did back then still affects what I do now and relates to what I do now. So I can draw on those experiences and and say that they shaped you know my interest in something yeah. like psychological testing. Yeah. So absolutely. Even when you know, like, okay, so <laughs> it's like okay, clinical counseling or school, you know, and then there's just a million more branches off that one branch. It can definitely be overwhelming to narrow it down to like, okay, clinical, but what kind of population, what kind of setting, things like that. It's definitely a lot to consider. Um, What initially drew you to psychology as an undergrad at MSU? So um, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a couple of years. And um, I think by your, your sophomore year, at uh, the end of your sophomore year, you have to make a decision. So I was actually undecided for two years. Oh, and, that sounds scary and, with all the pressure. That's yeah. I mean, I'm sure you and listeners are you know you are aware that it's 
there is pressure, then you have to make the decision and it feels like imminent and you're, you know, it's going to be your decision for the rest of your life, but that can change too. <laughs> um, but so I tried, so like I, I sort of did when I graduated and did different jobs, I, I was, took classes in business. I took classes in elementary education and then I took a psychology course um, intro and I thought, I, I knew I didn't want to do business. I knew I didn't want to do education. Well, I appreciate education now, but not at the time. I didn't want to do solely education, mm-hmm. and I and then I thought, well, psychology was really interesting to me. I took an abnormal psychology course, um, and that was pretty much it for me. It was a psychoanalytically um, informed abnormal psych course, so looking at the different psychiatric diagnoses from a psychoanalytic perspective. So that's sort of the Freudian. Um, and then moving on to the more relational psychodynamic approaches these days. And um, it was with <clears throat> Dr. Uh, Bertram Karen, who is a, was a major researcher in um, schizophrenia research. Oh. And so um, through MSU. And so I made sure to take every other class I could with him <laughs> after that. And I, it was sort of a, um, a, Spark, which is one of your questions, I think, too, um, for me, that this is what this was meant. I meant to go further in this field. And then I sort of just asked everyone I possibly could in terms of professors, like, what is this clinical psychology you know, thing? And mm-hmm. how do I get more of it? And <laughs> so um, that was kind of the start of it. Yeah, you had the bug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So is that also when you kind of felt like, okay, it's definitely clinical, like looking at the different abnormal psychoanalytic perspectives? Yeah, I knew that I had I had always been drawn to, um, even when when I was in um, in undergrad, I would always seek out, um, you know, internships where I worked at, uh, like homeless family services or volunteered where I was doing a lot more. I just noticed I had this this propensity toward clinical, like working with people, helping people. Yeah, you had a lot to give. Yeah. And I just, but I wanted to learn the strategies behind that and the depths of, of you know, now I, I have, I'm much more integrative in the way that I work, but the depth of something like, you know, knowing the importance of someone's childhood and how that impacts their relationships now and how they're thinking and they're feeling and it just it just like blew my mind and so I think I just I always was drawn to that interactional working you know one-on-one or in group setting I do group therapy now um, that I felt just compelled you know and so um, yeah so I think that that was just sort of where I went in my in my interest clinically. Yeah. So speaking of your clinical work, you know, inpatient, outpatient, what kind of patients do you see? Yeah, so I'm fairly um, generalist in the sense that I work with adults. Um, I work, I see sort of everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, I work with people who have anxiety disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, um, schizophrenia, people coming in with 
relationship issues, grieving, grief. Um, um, you know, you name it. Uh, and uh, I am really interested in developing, you know, of course, the initial, you know, what is this person looking for and how can I best help them? And so working from a very integrative, would they benefit from, you know, a psychodynamic approach or a cognitive behavioral approach to, to treatment or both? Yeah. Um, and so how can we fit that into, um, you know, what they're looking for? And it's always as much as there's, you know, to the clinical diagnoses, these are people, you know, and so you're you're working with the individual person and it's how I approach everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So you need a pretty big toolbox to be able to see all those, all that variance in um, mm-hmm. the kind of disorders and the kind of people that you're treating. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of methods do you find yourself using most often or um, most effectively? Do you yeah. have some signature moves? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, gosh, and I feel like I'm going to um, not answer it <laughs> um, by being my being a, giving a very psycho like a psychologist response yeah. to it. Um, but it really it really is sort of the individual person, um, and so clinical approach. So as always, you're wanting to know like what is someone coming in for? What are they looking for? And what can you offer them that is going to help? you know, meet the goals that they're, they're looking to reach. And, um, and so in all those situations, in all, with all patients, the relationship is so important. So that is um, allowing someone to feel comfortable and safe and open and providing that space for them. If you don't feel that way in therapy, it's, not going to be very helpful and allowing that chance for the person to say this isn't helpful or you know and then how can we maybe together figure out what might be helpful so if a a signature move (laughs) um, I would say I would say um you know in term in in the at the at the time that you're keeping the relationship and keeping that in mind and helping the person open up very um, in a way that allows you to be helpful to them, um, you're kind of navigating with them what's helpful. So it could be something like, I have a lot of anxiety and um, it's affecting my social relationships. And so you could do something like cognitive behaviorally, like a thought record where you would talk about um, the situation, what happens physically, emotionally, and behaviorally. Raising that yeah, awareness. Yeah, exactly. It's about awareness. And so and no, no matter what approach you take with people, that um, they're taking that awareness with them because you're not always going to be, you know, you're not, out, you're not out in the world with, with someone. So having them um, take the tools with them that yeah. we learn in therapy. And um, I feel like that's something too. A lot when you're studying, uh, people sometimes will get really excited, you know, about being able to explain their own personality and being able mm-hmm. to see like, 
Oh, that is interesting. Like when you do psychoeducation, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I feel like as people who are naturally interested in psychology and like, oh, why do people do the things that they do? Like we kind of take it for granted, for granted, whereas some people might not have had that brought to their attention before. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, you're right. I do get kind of clammy and like when I'm in this situation Mm -hmm. I start to feel this way so it it would be really cool to once you've pointed that out to them like that's probably Mm going to come out the door with them as well Mm -hmm. so you described that rapport is kind of like the foundation of Mm -hmm. your treatment how do you foster rapport in your outpatient settings yeah so um I create, I guess I, I may have said this, but creating a space where, um, you know, I'm open and I'm listening and I'm available and, um, and allowing, you know, my questions to um, be expressed in such a way that the, the other person feels um that they can open up more about what's bringing them in and how um, their current problems are really maybe distressing to them and how we can work together. I mean, promoting that collaboration is, um, it's just so um, key. And so saying things like, um, you know, work working together so we can, you know, figure out right. I am not against on. you mm-hmm. I'm not judging you those kinds of yeah I mean abs- absolutely really just um this is the place to do this and we're working together and I'm you know here to help you with that yeah mm-hmm. um so what are some unique aspects of working in a hospital setting like MGH like this huge ginormous hospital yeah um that's a good question I I feel like the hospital setting offers so many opportunities to collaborate, not only within your own field, but with other fields. Um, And that goes like, that just goes far beyond what you could ever imagine in terms of providing best patient care. And the opportunity to do that, I've I've never had it for this length of time. And in such a, a magnitude, it's just not only the resources, but just the the sheer, like, we get to be a team. Yeah. And I find that just completely, I don't know the word for it, just so helpful in so many ways. Yeah. No, I could definitely see that that would be, if you are in private practice or something like that, that's a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. to a lot of pressure to have on yourself mm-hmm. for treating patients. So becoming a therapist, there are a lot of different routes to get there. What made you decide on the doctoral route to becoming a therapist? I knew I wanted uh, variety. Yeah. And so I liked when I looked into the doctoral Uh, training programs and what they offered and what you had the opportunities to do. I, I liked the possibilities that you, you could, you know, start out one way and go another way and not, you know, be wedded to one specific way of being or thinking, you know, Um, and so you therapy, you can 
like I do have a private practice on the side, you know, here. And so you can do things like, you know, work a full-time job or work at a certain place and then do something like forensic work on yeah. the side. Um, neuropsychological testing or psychological testing. Um, you can really like kind of carve out your different interests and it doesn't have to be one thing your whole career. Yeah, you have a lot more flexibility with the... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that... Um, that gives, I think, just just so much opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another question that I often grapple with when I'm considering what kind of paths I want to go through. It's like, for example, today was our last day at camp, at Camp Baker, where I work. And um, saying goodbye to the kids after six weeks, oh, it was so hard. You know, how do you... Um, establish the how do you establish emotional boundaries with clients when you know them so intimately but then one day they might disappear and you never see them again yeah yeah well that that would you know if you're concerned if someone disappears and you're it's a concerning feeling um treatment ends and at times and you those are important processes processes right like being able to end well together and in a in a in a way that's not necessarily a rupture um or that might look different from an ending in a our relationship before that was troubling for someone that you can um and have a healthy you know in therapy, we say termination, yeah. which sounds very, <laughs> yeah, scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, and so, but, um, right, it's really just parting of ways. And, um, and yeah, so emotionally, um, I mean, we're, we're emotional beings, right? And so if you feel a certain way, I'm going to miss the kids at, you know, Judge Baker Mm -hmm. camp, you can say, I'm going to miss you, you know, Um, but there's, um, how do you, how do I manage that? How do I manage, Um, you know, knowing that the relation, that the person is coming to see you and looking to you for, um, as much clarity and support that you can give. And you're always keeping that in mind when you're with someone. Mm -hmm. And so you can feel sad, um, but you can also be there, you know, for for, um, your patient as they're ending or they're having a hard time or they're, you know, and you can provide that support that they need. Right, so Mm -hmm. keeping in mind like, this isn't about me. Mm-hmm. It's about your care. Yeah. And um, it's always, you know, um, I don't know how far we're getting into this, but, you know, the whole counter-transference, transference. Yes. Okay. So that you're always asking those questions, too. Yeah. You know, and you're checking in with yourself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Because, yeah, I know I'm a very sensitive person, you know, <laughs> so it is something I kind of think, oh, as I get more sounds like something too that with practice and with that perspective as well mm-hmm. will 
come kind of naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Yeah, and psychologists are always, um, or people in the, you know, in the field are usually encouraged to seek their own, you know, treatment as well. Right, that Mm self-care aspect, Mm -hmm. which we will definitely talk about later. (laughs) I'm so interested in how how people take care of themselves when they're doing um, really, you know, really exhausting work. You know, even if you love it, it is is fun. So you said that you became interested in the psychodynamic perspective in undergrad, Mm -hmm. in that clinical psych class. Um, How from there were you able to narrow in your research focus? Yeah, it was, well, it was, we talked, um, I connected with John Corsarelli, who you interviewed, and um, all I knew at that point was that he was a psycho dynamically inclined researcher he mm-hmm. took that into his his research interests and I thought okay that's my theoretical yeah, well, interest looking at, yeah. yeah and so I I don't know how I narrowed it down but when I worked with him it was again we were doing defensive functioning and object relations and that was very fitting with something I was interested in actually I learned there's a um Peter Fonagy does, um, he's a, a well-known psychologist and studies mentalization and reflective functioning mm-hmm. and attachment. And he, I read, I read one of his books and got really interested in reflective functioning, which is, and mentalization, which is the ability to sort of know your mind mm-hmm. and your, your thoughts and feelings and desires and, and also infer that of others. And so I found that very compelling. And so I think that was probably the guiding light for me to go into something more like attachment theory. And I think also I studied reflective functioning too in the beginning of my um, uh, grad program. But um, attachment theory always had a very strong hold on me, you know, the idea of and object relations as well. Yeah. So, like I was saying before, I feel like a lot of these um, psychodynamic theories can be, like, it's not quite, like, biological, I feel, where it's like, oh, just do an fMRI and, like, see what happens. Um, They're starting to do that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. I definitely have more questions about that as we talk more about research. I won't know, but... Do have any names? But I know they're doing it. (laughs) Uh, What are some ways that we measure things like attachment? Yeah. Um, Good question. So, um, we... All kinds of ways. So... And it depends on what type of attachment. So we're looking at childhood, you know, infant attachment, adult attachment. And so when we look at adult attachment, it's um, uh, sort of question. So something like the adult attachment interview, which is like, I don't know how long the training is. I'd love to be trained in it, but it's like an extensive training Mm -hmm. and so um it's a very extensive interview and very thorough and it captures the attachment of the person you're interviewing you know and what you would expect that to have looked like throughout their life and so um 
So that's one way, that's sort of an interview component. And then like a self-report measure, which is mostly what I've used. Um, and that's the, the one measure I've used a lot of is um, the experiences in close relationship skill. And that looks at adult romantic attachment. And even if you're not in a romantic relationship, it looks at relationships in, yeah. in general. And so uh, what underlies that is um, like a secure and anxious and avoidant attachment yes. style. And then the four or attachment dimensions, I should say. And then underneath that is like the four attachment styles. Um, and so, um, so that's one way like they've really they the psychoanalytic um community is really working towards an attachment there was actually separate separated from that a little bit in the beginning um with john bowlby um but um the operationalization of these variables is is really taking you know attachment has been studied in like every area you can imagine and yeah. so um it's it has a lot of usefulness um not only that but it it's become much more able to be studied over time like you're taking these theoretical ideas and you're putting them into concrete variables and it's telling you about people yeah and that's really cool and so um you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to talk about it because yeah, it was in your interview question. My next question um, was um, the, the scores G, the social cognition and object relation scale, um, which is another. So the attachment has the self other model in mind. So what your, you know, early relationships influence how you, you internalize them and how you you know, go about your life into your later relationships. And so um, uh, it was more focused on the external relationship and the internal working model. And object relations um, uh, also kind of focused on the self-other model. So they have like a lot of, they have, they're very related. And so what I've done typically is use a self-report measure for attachment and something like a narrative uh, uh, data, like the thematic and perception test, and you code it using the social cognition object relation scale. So you're using a multi-method approach to looking at these very like psychodynamic variables. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so um, scores G is the cognitive and affective um, uh, camps, and you know how someone. Um, the complexity of their representations yeah. and their affect tone and their investment, emotional investment relationships. And that goes hand in hand with attachment, secure versus insecure. Yeah, so, absolutely. So with self-report, you're going to get, okay, here's how they see the story. Yeah. And things with TAT, it's kind of hard not to yeah. show what's really going yeah. on. Under yeah. Underlying process. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what does the application of these results look like in your field? Yeah, um, so, okay, if someone, you know, if they have something like an insecure attachment style and then you measure their, so whether that's anxious or avoidant, and then you look at, um, you know, something like them in a primary care setting and 
are they high utilizers of, um, of hospital setting or doctor's appointments? Do they have more like um, physical bodily responses, mm -hmm. like somatic, something maybe that fits with somatic symptoms? Um, do they uh, um, have poor health overall? And so is that somehow connected to yeah. something like attachment? Um, so it crosses fields. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot more that psychology is in like everything. And so um, you can really, there's now health psychology is so much more prominent now um, but that these, you know, how we experience our relationships that impacts our physical health, yeah. how we, you know, handle that, our affect regulation that can be connected to, you know, health, career, relationship, Absolutely. satisfaction, things like that. Um, so it's just, I think in the field now, it, there's just much more crossing of, you know, camps like we're yeah. seeing, you know, health and and that these psychoanalytic variables that we are looking like studying are relevant. Yeah, predictors you know? of yeah. bigger problems or mm -hmm. things like that. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, no, psych is definitely getting... A lot more interdisciplinary, I think, which is very yeah. exciting because yeah. it can only help, time. I feel. You know? Yeah. Um, so we're talking about uh, self-reports, things like that. Um, do you think it's possible to look at one's own behavior in a relationship or their own personality in an objective way, even as a psychologist? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, don't, I know. I don't <laughs> think so. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know that studying you... Studying defense mechanisms. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I don't know that you want to. That's an excellent point. Yeah, because you're always coming from your subjective perspective, right. your perception, right? And so that's yours. And just like someone else is coming from their, you know, perspective and perception. And so, I mean, is anything ever really objective? I mean, we don't know. And so, um, but at the same time, as I say that, that's why you might go into, you know, go right. see a therapist to get that outside view. And um, the, the most interesting part, and I'm in the psychodynamic approach that I, I've adopted more these days is um, the relational approach, which is that there's always the relationship is always working between the two. And so what your experiences in the relationship is, um, is working with the other person's experience in the relationship. They're together. Yeah. And so, you know, you can take a, you know, you can take a step back, um, but I don't know about objectives. Yeah, that is a strong word, isn't it? Well, it's a good. I mean, it's a, it's it's a something to think about. Yeah, yeah. I feel like as we do study psychology, study how people interact with each other, it's hard not to think about that. You know, it's but, like, okay, am I just trying to cover my own ass here? Yeah. Like, yeah. But that's what makes it so much more. Um,
exciting because you get to say, okay, this is happening. Why might this be happening? What are my ideas? And you get to talk to the other person about it, you know? And so that can really open things up. And um, ultimately, relationships are really what we have in this world. So it's so much, it's just so important to be able to do that. I totally agree. Yeah. The relationships in my life that I experience are, right, absolutely the most important things to me. And it's very interesting to me who I connect with. And sometimes it's like immediate and I just know when you say like, oh, yeah, that's my kind of person, you know. And then other times you try to make it click and it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. What kind of ideas and this like psychologically or even personally, what kind of things have you experienced like that have been common denominators in your like really resonant connections with other people? Authenticity is a big one. And even saying, you know, I feel like we're not really connecting, but we're working together on this certain thing and we've got to work for the next (laughs) three weeks together or whatever. Um, So being open about that, I mean, and no matter how the person responds, um, you still have that openness, you know, you allowed for that. And yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and so common denominators, uh, authenticity, openness, um, course respect, and um, and you know not and maybe letting go of some of those expectations of how it should be, mm-hmm. um, like like I should get along with everybody, or you know, is there something going on with me that I'm not getting along with this person? And, um, Or, and it's not even necessarily getting along, but just like, you know, having that click, you know, it's just. Because when you have it, you have it. Yeah. Yeah. Some people more than others, but you can always have that opportunity and space to be um, open and real, you know, and so. even if there's not a, that click there and you never know what you might, you know, if you kind of, cause I think in those moments, sometimes we can get really in our heads. Yeah. And so if you kind of go with it, that might, you know, allow you to be, see someone differently, yeah. but also might just be that way. Yeah. You know? So I know it is interesting. Um, different people you talk to, sometimes they'll say like, you know, have the people you ask that they talk about, oh, our souls. The other half say like, well, you know, actually, like our rhythms and our biological. You know, uh-huh. it's really interesting. Um, you know, I can definitely attest. I can definitely attest to that. So speaking about speaking earlier about attachment style being something that we kind of. Uh, it's a little souvenir from our childhood, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there? How can can someone's attachment style change with, um, well, I'll start with this. Can someone's attachment style change throughout their lifetime? Yeah. How does one do that? Yeah. How does one do that? Um, I don't know how someone does it, but I I know that the research is mixed on it. And it's actually kind of a, it's sort of like, 
what does the research say now? What does it say? And it's just always sort of like there was one study done or a few studies done, um, gosh, maybe in the 90s. I might be mistaken, but I mean, but it might be earlier than that, 70s. Um, and there was like uh, from 18 months to adulthood, maybe 19 years or something, there was like a 60% concordance rating of the attachment style. Okay. And so it stayed, you know, 60% of people involved, it stayed the same. And then another study maybe came out and said something similar, and then it was like, not replicated, yeah. not replicated, not replicated. But it is something that is so unique, it might be hard to... Yeah, and and the reality is, is we are more than our attachment styles. <laughs> so um, there's so many factors in someone in a lifetime, you know, and whether that be, you know, pop, you, you're security in a uh, relationship partner, um, positive experiences, traumatic experiences, um, uh, you know, growth in, in certain, you know, relationships in general, um, therapy, I mean, psychoanalysis, things like that. Um, so I think, you know, being curious and and looking for that awareness can help at least be aware with what comes up for you in, in moments of stress. And that's usually when, you know, in attachment style and um, the attachment system is around um, proximity seeking and separation and loss and abandonment. Yeah. And so those are things that where it might be activated if you have an, you know, more of an insecure attachment style, but just tuning in, not just, but tuning into that, yeah. you know, um, that that can help you kind of, at least with awareness. And of course, something like therapy can be helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that same vein, um, can someone's, you talked a little bit about this, but um, can someone's attachment style change with the context or with the relationship, be that romantic or my boyfriend like uh, I never text him back but with my best friend like uh-huh. I'm very like very need much more reassurance with her uh-huh. you know that kind of thing oh, how are yeah, attachment styles change um with context yeah that's a great question um I think so yeah and I think uh what I have seen in the research is if your partner you know that it is and I think I this I, this feels like a light bulb moment to me too. What I just talked about with the relational, um, you know, in relationships that it's the two people together. I mean, that's how attachment style kind of right, like works as well. Piece. If you give them a little more, they yeah. might get a little less. <laughs> yeah. So how your partner responds to you and how you respond to your partner can absolutely bring out, you know, whatever that might, you know, be for you in terms of anxiety or, you know maybe withdraw or things like that in terms of avoidance. So, um, and uh, that is related to partner satisfaction. So it's um, the cohesiveness of their styles. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. If you have avoidant and anxious together, Mm -hmm. it might be a little bit of, a little bit more stress. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they do say, um, talk about, 
how different relationships might activate somebody's attachment mm. style. What does that verb look like in action? Yeah. Did I say activate? Did I? Um, they say that. So Yeah, I know. It's like it's a thing. Oh, it's thing. a thing. Okay. <laughs> um, it is a thing. And so they have, um, yeah, hyperactivating and deactivating styles or style strategies is what I meant. Um, and so those are secondary strategies. Um, I know no one can see me put quotes around that, <laughs> air quotes around that. Um, but so, um, okay, I'm going way back. So you're a child, an infant, 12 to 18 months or something, and you're seeking proximity to your caregiver and if they're available and responsive and sensitive to your needs in the moment, you can, you know, they're a secure base and then, and then you recover essentially, and then you can kind of go back to what you're doing. And, but if they're not um, responsive, if they're inconsistent, um, uh, sort of not interested, yeah. or on the other hand, overindulgent, like over-interested or kind of missing cues from the baby repeatedly, um, then you might be using something like a secondary strategy, which is hyperactivating or deactivating. And so those essentially are hyperactivating is the anxious, um, you know, where preoccupied, you know, needing reassurance. It might look like needing reassurance um, from you know, a, a relationship partner when you're adult, needing excessive reassurance, um, or uh, avoidant would be sort of um, kind of dismissing, you know, the importance of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so those, it's a good question because those strategies might not be active or employed if there's not right, a, a reason, a reason yeah. yeah. So um, it just might look more, you, they might be more activated. They would likely be activated at times when um, separation or loss or change in something, yeah. you know, of an important person in their lives. Um, so Starting to wrap up because your time is very valuable. Oh. <laughs> um, how, um, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier with um, self care, things like that. How yeah. do you practice work life balance? Yes. I get, I'm like a very active person. So I, spend time with friends, with family. I play soccer. Oh, that is awesome. I still play now. You have hobbies? That's crazy. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so important. It's so important. And um, this is what you, you know, you talk to your patients about. You, like, you, it's How you so relate important to, to have your son. Yeah. yeah, and so, um, uh, yeah, anything. In fact, I was just, I was just in, Michigan a couple weeks ago so with my family so that was really nice um but it's like anything yeah sports friends the beach oh, I love the beach yeah oh my gosh so, 
Oh, that is so incredible to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, you when can't I have a life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. No, you definitely do get a lot of like. It's hard. Next question. Oh. <laughs> I mean, um, you, and making time for it is so important. Yeah, scheduling in. Yeah. Time for yourself. Yeah, because it is very easy to say, "Oh no, it's okay, it's fine." Um, but when you start to catch yourself doing that too much, you can say, "Oh, yeah, okay." I'm going to do this, do that, or take some, you know, go to the spa or whatever works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that is so cool to hear. My favorite question to ask is this one. So how has studying psychology changed how you view uh, other people, yourself, and the world that you interact with? Yeah, um, I don't even know what my life was like before. I know. Um, Two people who are studying psychology are like, hey, he's been thinking about the class, you know? <laughs> Right. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I, um, my life feels so filled with meaning. Yes. And um, that involves that I love the work that I do. I love the people that are in my life. I get to come here every day and like be at this awesome place and, and like still do research that I have been doing for all these years. And it's just, you know, one thing that I've seen in people is that people want to know about themselves and what's going on for them. And there's a hope in that. And there's a, a drive to have a more meaningful life, be more invested in yourself and in others and in a in a really in a way that gives you that again awareness and authenticity and just taking life in absolutely yeah yeah just being in your life and awake and I think I see that there's such a need and it's so refreshing and um I think I've grown with that I learned I'm always learning. I I say I don't know at least once a day. Um, and so it's like you're learning from your patients, you're learning from your colleagues, you're learning from, you know, someone you met on the train or this, you know, it just keeps going. And it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're totally speaking my language. <laughs> final question yes so if you could give some advice to folks like me who are Mm -hmm. just starting out their educational journey through psych what kind of advice would you give me don't be afraid to go outside of what you're studying outside of the box one of the coolest classes and I still reference it today I ever took was an Italian Renaissance art history class when I studied abroad. I was in Italy for a semester in MSU. And I did an Italy trip through MSU. Nice. Oh, cool. Okay, good. Um, yeah. And so I, I realized that like what I was learning about, I was, I was just, it was an amazing class. What I was learning about, we were going to see and, um, what I realized was so powerful about it was that um, every piece of art, every, and I never knew I was interested in it. 
and everything has a story. Just like we all have stories and the people that you meet have stories. And so it has a relevance, even though you might think, well, I'm studying psychology and this wouldn't, you know, this isn't in the field, so it's probably not going to be relevant. You never know if you're interested in it and you have the opportunity to go for it. And anything, you know, this is probably, I think, and also one of the questions was like, if I could tell my undergrad self, yeah, um, I would probably say, and I thought about this because it's like, that's like a really deep question (laughs) when you're like thinking back, I'm going to tell you how long ago that was, but (laughs) that, um, whatever you're like looking for you have it's within you and it's out there but it's also within you and you're just unlocking it as you're going along so trust in that you know and that because I it's such a it's such a challenging time you know you you know what you want but you're also figuring things out and um and so do that yeah and go for it yeah yeah, that's awesome. You seem to have reaped the benefits of having a lot of different perspectives. Yes. See, and like seeking out those different perspectives, yes. like through art, through travel, things like that. Mm-hmm. That is so incredible. And then also that perspective that comes from trying on different hats mm-hmm. and seeing what is a good fit for you. So different perspectives of yourself and maybe different perspectives of things that are around you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. I've so enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, oh my gosh. I have too. Thank you so much. I'm happy, was happy to do this. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay, that's a wrap. A huge thank you to Dr. Richardson for all your insight into attachment and therapy and working in a hospital setting and all of the other great things that we got to hear about in that, in that interview. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. And if you know, listener, anybody else who would be so generous with their time and be willing to talk to us, we would so, so greatly appreciate it. You can see um, the references that we're kind of hoping to scope out for um, the next couple episodes as uh, the semester gets started on our website under the tab that says references. Er, Yeah, referrals. Yeah, referrals. That's right. Yep. Right. I'm getting back into like the APA format, like yeah. <laughs> mindset, you know, think about my references. Gosh. Yep. Or, you know, the whole resume mindset, you know, your references, yeah. your APA formatted resume. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But if you head, head on over to pre-occupied.com, you can check out our awesome website that I've spent many long and difficult hours working on. <laughs> A um, labor of love. Yep. It may not look that great, but know that it was built with yes. uh, a lot of intent and effort. <laughs> um, and then finally, a huge thank you to Dr. Caleb Seifer at U of M Dearborn for referring us to um, Dr. Richardson. And again, if you have a referral or anything, send us an email at hosts at pre-occupied.com check out our facebook our twitter give us a rating a review a subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and tell folks tell folks (laughs) definitely we appreciate 
being able to get this out there so that as many people as possible can benefit from the insight that all of our interviewees bring on to the show. Yes, absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next time on Preoccupied. good that was solid